Hello everyone and welcome to the final episode of season four of the Undercover Podcast. I'm Courtney Holder. And I'm James Dowling. As the season comes to a close, don't think we would forget to give it a final send-off. Oh, I've been waiting for this one. Exploring some new and old Melbourne additions and traditions, today's episode covers the very latest. From the Hillsborough disaster, new Aussie bands and native food, to drinking at the AFL and expensive burgers. We've got an exciting package recorded and ready. So Courtney, you've ever had a drink at the footy? I mean, obviously, what else do you do at the footy? (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Uh, I think we all have, right? But have we ever questioned it? And is it good for us? Our reporter, Tiana Condren, has done a little digging to find out just how much we drink at the footy and why. Inside, Mr. Target. Over the back it comes. Petrie around the corner. Snap goal. He's got it. They're back in front by five north. When I think of the AFL, I envision sweaty men, peak athleticism, striped scarves, and, of course, a beer in my hand. As the 2023 AFL season kicks off, footy fans unite to not only watch the game, but to drink. It seems that whenever a ball is involved, an esky full of Great Northern isn't too far behind. So, I decided to head on down to a game to catch some footy fans and see why they drink. Because yeah, you have a better time with your mates, you know, you get closer with everyone, you have a great time cheering with everyone, it's a great time, every time. Yeah mate, I have a few beers watching the footy at home anyway, so... Coming to the footy, I'm still going to have me a few beers and just, just enjoy it. It's a weekend. I don't know, it just relaxes you and um, makes you happy. And I mean, I don't need alcohol to be happy, but it just um, just makes you social. And... and it would be shit otherwise. <laughs> and beer and footy goes together. Why not? Everyone else does, I guess. So. No, it's just part of the culture. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's the camaraderie of it all. You know, inner spirit, got to get into it. Why not? Why not, yeah. We all know that alcohol and sport have an old and distinct relationship in Australia, but I don't think we realise just how many of us have a bevy when the game's on. So, let's speak to Deputy Director of the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University, Amy Penney, who conducted a small pilot study about the significant relationship between alcohol and sports spectatorship. Hey Amy, so what were the findings? Yeah, so 89% of participants said that they consumed alcohol on on a day when they watched AFL. More than a third had had a drink before the game and a third also had a drink after the game. The total they reported drinking was six standard drinks over the course of the before, during and after. Surprisingly, not a lot of research has been done on this prevalent relationship between AFL and alcohol or even really sport and alcohol in Australia. John Fitzgerald is an expert in alcohol and drug policy and said that sporting politics may play a part in the mystery. Basically, it's a very intense political field and a commercial field as well. You know, the AFL is sponsored or was sponsored by the alcohol industry. So they're not interested, the the sponsors are not interested in research that shows, you know, harmful alcohol consumption. But it's not just the fans that get around the drinking culture. Professional AFL players have had their fair share of alcohol-related incidents and definitely enjoy a schooner to celebrate. But professional or not, 
Excessive drinking can affect our decision-making processes and lead to some dire consequences. Police are tonight trying to track down a violent footy fan wanted over a brutal attack at Adelaide Oval. The AFL Oval. is considering banning a 19-year-old film throwing punches in a wild post-match Dozens of intoxicated fans had to be forcibly removed by security. In 2008, John Fitzgerald conducted a study to examine patterns of alcohol consumption and experience of alcohol-related harms among professional AFL players. During the playing season, they were actually, they were not drinking at hazardous levels at all. The other comparison is that if you look at end of season consumption, 37% of players were drinking at that risk level compared to the general population of 6%. What happens is that they stop drinking during playing season and then at the end they go off the rails. But this isn't just an AFL problem. It is deeply embedded into the Australian culture. It is a kind of cultural thing that we do in Australia as well, is that we do have this kind of push-pull kind of scarcity reward relationship with alcohol and we go berserk with it rather than it being, in a sense, interweaved in a more balanced way through life, it becomes part of our vocabulary for going wild. And that's where the risk is. So where does this leave us? Do we give up drinking altogether? Or is there an easier way of managing our alcohol consumption that involves drinking in moderation and becoming aware of our habits? You tell me. Thanks, Tiana. For our next story, Matt Slocum is going to give us an exclusive look at the new hip-hop group Making Waves. I mean, I haven't heard any Australian rap, but this stuff slaps. It's 2023, and Australian hip-hop has come a long, long way. But one thing hasn't changed. Those pushing the genre forward, the needle movers and the pace setters, hardly ever get their recognition nor the financial stability. Drill music has played a huge part in the expansion of the rap scene in Australia over the last seven or eight years. It's dominated global airwaves, but now we find ourselves at a crossroad. The formula works, that's for sure, but there's an argument that the genre has pushed its limit, with new music becoming more and more stale. Enter local Melbourne collective, New Wave, who are in pole position to make the genre theirs. Consisting of three members, Brothers Tactics and Kid Lays and Moses, they've amassed millions of plays with songs like 6G's. How about now? Where were you back then? When I was stuck in the den, me and my in cash flow. Said I'm back in my ends for the weekend. Hotline keeps blinging. And they've done it all by themselves, with no playlisting and no label. It's their consistent output and solid community foundation that New Wave accredits to their success. Cranbourne in Melbourne Southeast is New Wave's home. It's about an hour and a half drive away from the CBD. In their first interview, I drive out to see where the journey began. So let's take it back to day dot. Me and Lays kind of like decided well, like to start posting shit. It was during like um COVID. And then um like it wasn't even long after that. It was when we started um when Moses came through done his shit. And then, um, like, cause me and Lays, we just done like sort of a minor thing. But then when he hopped on board, and we actually started getting a lot of um, recognition for it, really, and it was, it was sort of um, it was coming through good. And then, kind of just wanted to keep that consistent. 
Because at the start, it was just like muck around stuff that we could just listen to. When we heard all, all three of us, you know, going serious and how we sound together on a track in like a full serious track, we should just start doing it. So essentially, that's exactly what they did. After years of consistency, it's paid off. Now, they're further than they ever anticipated, but still, they're actually nowhere near their full potential. New Wave are a breath of fresh air and have the ability to catapult their way to the top. They're refreshing, they actually have something new to say, and their consistency and hunger shines through their music. I think, I think that's a fairly accurate assumption, I'd say, going against the grain, just giving it that, that spin on it. And it's that spin that makes them unique. That's what makes New Wave, New Wave. But most importantly, they're authentic. It's the type of authenticity you can just hear. Without even knowing them, it's really obvious that they're a family. Labels can't buy that. And that's what separates them from the crowd. Both of our families were like really supportive, you know, and to this day they still want us to keep following our dreams, you know, give it 100%, just keep going. Mm. So the convo was pretty easy. If we want to make music, do you want to listen to our songs? And they're like, yeah, cool. They heard it, they're like, yeah, that's mad. But really, when we look back at it, we're like, fuck, that was shit. Yeah, <laughs> Lucky yeah, they didn't tell really us to stop doing music. <laughs> we used to just get told off for swearing. In our I was the only one that was swearing because <laughs> their parents wouldn't let me. My yeah. lyrics were full clean. You used to sneak in some Man, swear I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. But his parents were like, oh, fuck. Growing up in a small area and being a rapper, it's kind of a taboo thing. But since they were the only ones doing it, they were able to grow an organic local community and fan base, which then translates into their streaming model and business model as well. They started out freestyling in a park with their mates, having drinks and food, and having fun. That's real community ties, and it was a real foundation for them to build upon as they go forward, hence their streaming numbers. It's actually the park and exact table that I'm sitting at as I interview them at 8.30pm in Cranbourne, with the setting only lit up by all of our phone lights combined. Looking back though, they've achieved a lot. They've come further than they ever thought they could, but they're far from content. New Wave want to go international, and honestly, their eventual explosion to global stardom seems to be just around the corner. They're a breath of fresh air. So, take a deep breath. New Wave aren't even next. They're now. I want to be a millionaire in the next two years, not even five. <laughs> yeah, once I'm a millionaire, that's it. Yeah, if I make a mill and that's that, then I'll just make music for fun at that point. <laughs> and release it for free. Thanks for that, Matt. Our next story is about the tragedy of the Hillsborough disaster. Our reporter Adam Miller has a retrospective on the tragic event that is still heavy on the minds of Liverpudlians. Hillsborough might just be a stadium in the United Kingdom, but the tragedy that occurred there on the 19th of April 1989 is as well told as it is tragic. 34 years ago, 97 men, women and children, along with thousands of other soccer fans, arrived at the Hillsborough Stadium in South Yorkshire to see Liverpool and Nottingham Forest contest the second semi-final of that year's FA Cup. The 97 would not take the train back home to Merseyside. They would not pick up the bread and milk before returning home. They would not climb into their bed with memory of the game firmly etched in their mind. They were gone. For Liverpool, for Merseyside, the pain would only be in its formative moments. Even in Australia, the tragedy weighs heavy in the hearts of many Red supporters. Joshua Allen has not been to Anfield, Liverpool or the United Kingdom, yet he feels passionately about the fight for justice the Merseysiders have been fighting for the last 33 years. 
nobody ever dreams of going to a football match and not coming home. I think that is terrifying. The fact that when you're aligned, when, when you when you feel like you're part of a club that so heavily aligns with your values and that club is attacked, which it was by the government, by Thatcher, by the Sun, you feel like you're being attacked too. The ferocity in which Liverpool fans were accused of being responsible from certain aspects of the media, especially the Sun paper, caused a rift between the city and the rest of the country, which is still evident even to this day. The Sun, then led by editor-in-chief Caleb McKenzie, tarnished the reputation of Liverpool forever, both the city and the football club, with their The Truth Report. The report, which was later proven to be highly fabricated, stated that the human crush which took the lives of the victims was caught by drunk Liverpool fans without tickets, storming the entry gates to access the ground. It also accused fans of stealing from the dead and preventing emergency service workers from giving life-saving treatment to the wounded. For somebody to just come in and assign blame and just be like, well, they're a bunch of drunkards, mm-hmm. is just disgusting on any platform, any level. Um, it just defies human decency. The backlash from the report still impacts the paper to this day. Its journalists have been banned from Anfield and Goodison Park, home of Liverpool and the arch-rivals Everton, since 2017, as well as their training grounds on Melwood and Finch Park, respectively. Alan, a journalist himself, is supportive of the bans. I'm one who generally likes to assign forgiveness, but that was a disgusting act. In 2015, investigative journalist Chris Horry estimated the boycott enacted by some Merseysiders following the release of the report was costing the paper's owners news corp $15 million a month when adjusted for 1989 inflation rates. Sales of the sun within the Merseyside area are estimated to have dropped from 55,000 copies per day for four Hillsborough to 12,000 in the present day. This all being said, Alan does not believe the sun will change their journalistic approach. In March 2020, the Press Gazette's Charlotte Tobit and Asha Majid reported that the sun circulates 1.2 million copies monthly. That same year, despite the pandemic raging across the world, News Corp reported $624 million in revenue. 34 years has passed since Hillsborough, and Alan himself has doubts of whether or not justice could ever truly be served in memory of the victims. At this point, I don't know if justice can be achieved. Yeah, I think that moment's gone. It was left to fester for so long. The bare minimum in terms of an apology has been made. I think it's just one of those horrible events that just sadly has to live in everyone's hearts at the club. Overall, Alan believes the tragedy can simply not be forgotten and the lessons must be learned from it. Yeah, for me, I would hope that should it happen again, uh, the response would be totally different. Whether it be in Liverpool, the United Kingdom, or 17,000 kilometres away in Melbourne, Australia. It is clear to see the tragedy of Hillsborough still touches people as much as it did 34 years ago. Anna Miller, Undercover. find really weird since I've moved to Australia is that you don't see a lot of native produce in the supermarkets. Why is that? Yeah, you're right. In our next story, our reporter Olivia has gone to a farm in Melbourne southeast that's trying to prioritise getting native produce into supermarkets. The increasing rate of extreme weather events affecting crops means food that comes from the earth can get pretty expensive. I'm talking fruits and vegetables. But while most of the produce sold in Aussie supermarkets is grown here, These crops aren't native, 
so they're not resilient to the extremes of the Australian climate. So I'm in a supermarket in Melbourne CBD and I'm just checking out which fruits, vegetables and other plant food is grown here in Australia. So we've got kiwi fruits grown in New Zealand, oh coconuts, product of Samoa, watermelon grown in Australia, pineapples grown in Australia. What about some of our leafy greens? We've got bok choy grown in Australia. We've got kale grown in Australia. A couple of types of avocados both grown in Australia. And red, green and yellow capsicums all grown in Australia. Most of this produce is probably grown in Queensland, which grows more than 90% of Australia's bananas and between 60 and 69% of Australia's mangoes, avocados, capsicums and macadamias. But only one of these plants is native to Australia. It's macadamias, and according to the Observatory of Economic Complexity, we're not even the world's largest producer and exporter of macadamias. In 2021, that title went to South Africa. But can I find any Aussie food? Let's see. These macadamias were grown in Kenya and packed in Australia. Interesting. So this got me thinking. Australia is said to be home to the longest living continuous culture on earth. And it's not like the indigenous people of this land survived solely off hunted animals and macadamias. But when I went through the supermarket, I couldn't really see Aussie bush tucker. And when I think about it, I'm not sure I've ever eaten native Aussie produce. But these kinds of plants thrive here, which means they're not just cheaper to grow, buy and sell, but they're better for the environment too. So I went and spoke to 25-year-old entrepreneur Hayden Marks who started selling native Aussie plants out of his apartment four years ago as a side hustle called Melbourne Bush Food. The business has now grown into a nursery, factory space and commercial kitchen facilities in Fairfield near Melbourne, shipping native Aussie plants around the country and creating pantry products made from them. So I asked Hayden about the sustainability of native produce. Australian soil is notoriously low in phosphorus, so the plants have had to evolve to create a lot of these nutrients for themselves. By importing all of these overseas species, you need to then put those inputs into the soil as well. And obviously there's all of these runoffs going into the Murray-Darling Basin and that, that water source as well, because it's been irrigated, it's, that river source is starting to shrink as well, causing lots of issues in, within the ecosystem there. Hayden's right. Imported produce requires heavy irrigation, which results in soil erosion and loss of habitat. And runoffs from crops are a major problem for the Murray-Darling Basin, which covers four states, including Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. According to an article for The Conversation by economist and former member of the Climate Change Authority, John Quiggin, in 1991, an outbreak of toxic algae fed by nitrogen and other nutrients in fertiliser runoff and sewage affected over 1,200 kilometres of the Darling River, and these outbreaks continue to occur. As Indigenous writer and anthologist Bruce Pascoe puts it in his 2018 TEDx talk, Australia is a drying continent. World and national inaction on the human contribution to climate change is leading to a situation where we will soon struggle to irrigate crops. Aboriginal domesticates do not require any more moisture than the Australian climate provides. No more fertiliser than our soils already contain. And as they are adapted to Australian pests, they need no pesticide. 
Hayden showed me around the nursery and pointed out some of the most sustainable Aussie bush tucker he loves. So this one here is the mun tree. We're looking at a really viney plant that's growing upright with hundreds of little teardrop shaped leaves and a dense growth of bright pink berries. Like you taste it, it's kind of like this pear-y sort of apple-y sort of vibe with some all spicy, maybe nutmeggy notes. So the reason I like the Muntry so much is because it grows out in the desert, has no water whatsoever inside, and it produces copious amounts of fruit. So it's like something when we're thinking about like sustainability side of things, it's awesome. Then there was sea celery, which kind of looks like parsley. So this is a super, super cool plant. It's indigenous to Darabin, which is the area that we're in. Uh, it's not an annual plant, it's perennial, so you don't have to constantly re-sow and stuff like that. So, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you grow this? Why would you grow parsley? And Warrigal greens, which to me had the crunch of lettuce, but the taste of spinach, if not a little sweeter. You know how spinach is much more irony, kind yeah. of like metallic flavor? This doesn't have that, and it covers an entire space really, really quickly, which is really good. And it will just constantly grow. It doesn't get attacked by slugs and snails, which spinach does. As a born and raised Aussie, I couldn't believe I'd never tried these plants. I'd never heard of them. And Hayden felt the same way when he first got interested in native Aussie plant food. His mission with Melbourne Bush Food is to get Aussie bush tucker into as many people's bellies as possible. So I asked him, what needs to happen to make that goal a reality? We need to stop the export of native food plants and the government needs to fund commercial research into the development of native food species so we can protect them here in Australia and find ways to protect the intellectual property of indigenous people. There's now a finger lime association in California. Lemon myrtle, for example, the largest lemon myrtle farm is now in Malaysia. What does that mean for Aboriginal people? What does that mean for Australia? Because the benefit's not going to be shared either way. Hey, Courtney, do you know what my go-to like guilty takeaway food is what burgers i just i can't get enough of them i actually love burgers but you know what they're so expensive now like isn't it ridiculous yeah you're so right our next reporter ethan actually has a story on why that was prices just keep going up oh no way let's go burgers have been around for a very long time they're the western world staple fast food meal where if you don't know what to get on a friday night the thought of a burger and fries combo would have most likely crossed your mind at least once. Melbourne, although not necessarily known for its burgers, does have its gems. Some bigger names like Grilled, Royal Stacks and Betty's Burgers have been popular for some time. Of course, there are other chains such as Easy's, Juanita's Peaches and Leonard's House of Love, to name a few, which all have made their mark. However, nothing beats quick, easy and greasy like Macca's and Hungry Jack's. These burger giants have been running the game for a very long time. With a massive and seasonal menu, speedy service, grub for the whole family, and affordability, it's not really a secret as to how they've monopolized the burger. No but as of late, does the affordability factor still count? Burgers are expensive, and whether or not a specific meal or combo is worth it depends from one person to another but they are certainly pricier than before. There's no particular way or factor to determine the why, but in recent years, it can be boiled down to, yes, inflation. Dr. Ivan Balbuzinov, a senior lecturer at Melbourne University specializing in microeconomic theory, says that the rise in the price of burgers is related to big inflation wave we have had over the last couple of years. But specifically for the fast food restaurants, the uh, factors that are driving price of their product up is the cost of labor for them has gone up and the cost of ingredients has gone up. 
The boogeyman of every monetary societal aspect has found its way to burgers. It's inevitable and, well, has been finding its way there for a very long time. But how is inflation doing this not just to burgers, but to goods in general? The general increase in prices in the economy, inflation, and the cost of ingredients is a special case of that. The increase in those prices is driven by, perhaps, an increase in demand for goods and services across the entire economy. This is kind of one of the main causes of inflation and a likely culprit or a likely contributor, at least, for you know the inflation uh, episode we're uh, going through right now. This is typically known as demand pool inflation, and you know often is described as too much money chasing too few goods and services. Inflation rates had risen to a whopping 7.8% in the December quarter of 2022, seeing its peak of a 30-year high according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And while it has gone down to 7% in the March quarter of this year, there hasn't been an observable reduction in the prices of burgers. And the reason for that is... When the price of labor goes up, uh, when um, an establishment has to pay higher wages to their workers, and at the same time, the raw materials are more expensive, the costs of operating and producing the burgers that they're producing is increasing. And those costs necessarily get passed on to consumers in the form of a price increase. A report in 2022 from the Daily Mail UK had compared the Australian Maccas prices from two years prior. The famous Big Mac in 2019 cost $5.75 if ordered through the My Maccas app. In 2022, it cost $6.90. A large meal would run you $10.55 and $12.70 respectively. But right now, it sits at $13.30. To name some additional burger chains from before, the CBD has College Dropout, Simpsons Burgers, Rocket Burger and Fries, Beast, and Five Guys. One thing that these places have in common is that their cheeseburger equivalent would cost me, on average, $13.20, just 10 cents shy of a large Big Mac meal. Um, there are alternatives to raising the prices. Essentially, inflation, but disguised inflation. So, some things that fast food restaurants but also other producers in the economy can do um, to disguise their rising prices is to, for example, decrease the size of their offerings. Maybe $10 got you uh, one of the menu items. They want to maintain the price of the menu item at $10, but now instead of offering you the same size for the uh, chips and the same size drink, they're going to downsize both of them. This is known as shrinkflation. As things are now, it doesn't seem like prices are going down anytime soon. And these restaurants are unlikely to do so since they still receive a profitable amount of traffic. Monetary policies are one of the main counters to inflation rates, where recently the Reserve Bank of Australia raised their cash rate to 3.85%, denying investments from firms and incentivizing the general population to spend less money and save more in an attempt to drive down demand for goods and services which in the long run could hopefully mean cheaper burgers. So the goal here is by decreasing investment, by decreasing consumption, that's going to drive demand for goods and services down again, and it's going to keep a lid on the price increases. It's going to, at the very least, slow down the price increases that we're seeing. This is Ethan Benedicto reporting for RMIT. And that's it. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Undercover. 
We'd like to thank the reporters, Matt Slocum, Ethan Benedicto, Olivia Sanders, Adam Miller, and Tiana Condren. We'd also like to thank the producer of this episode, Gabriel Mills Connolly, and the wonderful executive producers, Lisa DeVisi and Tito Ambio. And that's it for this season of Undercover. We want to thank everyone who tuned in and listened. We want to thank all of the incredibly talented students and reporters who put these stories together. See you next time.